Church. Thanks for listening in. We exist as a church to connect people to the heart of God and to a family within the church. And we believe that Jesus is the way. We hope this message blesses you and gives you hope today. Good morning. How is everyone? Y'all doing well? Did you guys meet a neighbor during neighbor time? I don't know why I'm calling it that. It's second service, and I guess I'm feeling loose. Uh, Welcome to church. My name is Bronson. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, right now we are in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. And what we've been doing is we've been studying through, and it's a blast. What we're doing is we're studying something called narrative text. So there's a couple different types of, there's lots of different genres of scripture, but you have things like narrative text, but then you have something called didactic text. Anybody want to be a nerd? Just use that in in casual conversation. You know, I was studying the didactic text of the Ten Commandments this week, which is doctrinal text, okay? And so why am I telling you that? What we're doing is we're trying to look underneath the text. Does that make sense? We're trying to look underneath the text to see what God is doing, to see what God is speaking, and to see what it means for us. Um, Kind of give you an overview of the book of Acts. This has kind of been our working overview this past few weeks, is that the message of the book of Acts is that God has filled his people, everybody say his people, with his spirit. I'm not going to make you keep repeating. He's filled his people with his spirit, and he sent us out as his ambassadors to every corner of the earth to spread his message of his kingdom for the redemption and renewal of a world that he so desperately loves. Are you picking anything up in that definition? The whole thing is about Jesus and what he's doing. As we study the word, we're seeking to understand God and understand God's story and how we fit into it. Does that make sense? I think too often we read the Bible as a story about us when really it's a story about God. Amen? Uh, This morning, we're going to look at the most famous conversion in the history of the world. Okay, this is the conversion of Saul. Uh, To set up a little bit of background here, Saul, whose name at some point post-conversion is changed to Paul, the Apostle Paul. So I'm going to use those names interchangeably, and it'll get really confusing if we don't know that. So I'm not going to be able to keep it straight. Sometimes I'm going to call him Paul. Sometimes I'm going to call him Saul. Are you with me? Um, so he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, who be the Gentiles? Who is that? That'd be us. Okay, we're, we're the Gentiles. Uh, so he's sent to preach the gospel to people who are not of Jewish nationality. Um, he, Saul, slash Paul, wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. 13 of the 27 books. That means that he wrote 48% of the New Testament. It's pretty incredible. He's a major figure in the life of the early church, first as a violent persecutor. We're going to dig all the way down into that. And then later as a pastor, a church planter, and uh, a builder of it. Uh, so church history tells us that this man, who originally killed people for their faith, is eventually executed for his faith in Jesus. So he starts out killing people for their faith in Jesus, and eventually he's executed for his faith. Uh, Joseph Fitzmaier, he says it this way. He says, this story is not an account of the psychological, psychological conversion. So this is not just a mental thing that's happening, as it's often characterized, but it's the story of how divine grace transforms even the life of a persecutor. It's the story, I'm going to say that one more time. It's the story of how divine grace transforms even the life 
of a persecutor. So this is a story about the power of God. One writer described it as the roaring lion becoming a bleeding lamb, right? Isn't that cool? Like how, how God transforms our character. And so uh, church history would tell us that uh, he was beheaded in Rome. Uh, as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see that he eventually makes it to Rome to evangelize. Um, but there was a great fire in AD 64 uh, where two-thirds of the, of the city of Rome was burned down. And what Nero did is he actually blamed Christians for this. And so this started mass persecution and the killing of Christians. And so most people would say this is when uh, the Apostle Paul was killed and um, beheaded. And so Recommended reading, the part you've all been waiting for, right? Who lives for the recommended reading? Anybody? Any? Okay, a few readers, okay. Um, number one, there's a book called The Message of Acts. I quote that a ton within this series. It's a commentary, but it's an understandable commentary. It's not like a deep ap academic work, although the guy's brilliant, but I think it's something we can all grasp. And so if you're looking for something, an additional resource, uh, The Message of Acts by John Stott, I really like. I also uh, used Concise Theology. That's a good name for a theological book, right? Concise Theology uh, by J.I. Packer um, a bit. So I recommend that. And then there's another book called What's So Amazing About Grace. If you're looking for something that's an easy read, that's going to encourage you, that's going to help you, it's by a guy named Philip Yancey. Okay, so the thesis for this morning that we're going we're gonna to read the scripture, we're going to dig in. Um, here's what it is. We all can and must be called by Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and then be commissioned by Jesus. This is what every Christian needs. So the title of this message, if you're taking notes, is The Conversion. And so uh, Rachel here has our text for this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9, if you want to go to your Bibles. And as you do that, if you could stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, we, we believe that, I've said this the first few weeks, I'm going to keep saying it for a bit. This is the most important part of our service. Uh, when God's word, like this is where God has spoken to us, is read aloud. And so we want to honor that with our posture. And I want to encourage you to take some time as she reads through it and just, just go through it, see what jumps out to you. Maybe jot a note down or make a mental note and we'll jump into it uh, when we're done. And so Rachel's going to read this. We're in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22 in the NIV, if you want to follow along. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the pre chief 
priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. I will show, show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you speak to us through it, and God, we just honor you. We believe that you're the creator of heaven and earth, that you sent Jesus here to redeem us and to bring us into who you've called us to be, and God, we thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit to equip us to actually do it. And so our prayer is simple this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Hey, you can take a seat. Uh, we all love transformational stories, don't we? Why is that? What is it about us that loves like a Cinderella story? Like, you know, Stetson Bennett, any Georgia fans in here? No, he started at 17th on the roster for quarterbacks, and then he led us to a national title. He's struggling right now, but I'm believing for another comeback in Jesus' name. And all the Georgia fans said... Just me. Amen. Um, we love rags to riches stories, right? We love transformation stories. That's why we love like shows about weight loss journeys or makeovers or whatever it is. There is something in us that loves to see dead things resurrected, right? Like there's something within us. If you look at all of our stories, uh, there's something called the monomyth. Has anybody ever heard of that? The monomyth. It's basically every story, every mythology, it's all the exact same story, which is like someone was at home and they journeyed out and they had to have a transformation. At some point, it looks like they were going to be defeated and then they rose up in victory, all this stuff. It's the same story over and over and over and over again. And something within us resonates with this, right? I, I think one of the greatest transformation stories in all of, of cinema is the trans transformation of this man, Walter Hobbs, right? Who knows who this is? Who is he? Uh, he is the dad from Elf, right? Okay, so we're headed towards uh, the holiday season, so I figure it's appropriate to bring some of these in. Uh, if you've not seen the movie, I don't know where you've been the past 20 years, but uh, he, he was the father of Buddy the Elf, and he, like, oppressed him, right? Like, he, he wanted him to quit acting like an elf. Uh, he thought he was an absolute lunatic, right? He made him change his clothes. He yelled at him when he destroyed his house, which is understandable. Uh, but in the end, he gets filled with the spirit of Christmas, Right? And he does what? He sings loud for all to hear. Okay, do you guys remember the moment of transformation? Does anyone remember what happened? Yell it out, it's okay. 
what happened? He, he saw Santa. He was in Central Park. He was not singing. His son noticed that he calls him out. And as he starts singing, boom, Santa's sleigh goes over his head. And he believes, right? He goes from a skeptic to a believer. He goes from opposition to devotion. When he encounters Santa, when he sees the sleigh, he believes. Now, the conversion story we're we're, we're studying today is much more extreme, but the same principle applies. The question we have to ask, and this is what we're digging into today, is how did someone go from being willing to kill, to murder, to destroy the church, to being willing to die to build it? How did somebody go from being willing to kill, to destroy the church, to being willing to die, to build it? He had a true encounter with the source of faith. He had a true encounter with the risen Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's enter the text here. Who is Saul of Tarsus? He was the chief persecutor of the early church. Uh, his name, Saul, struck fear into Christians. We see that within the text. Uh, The best modern way that we could look at this is he was a religious terrorist. That's literally what he was, right? He was like a jihadist. He, He had his belief system and he was killing others who were standing against that belief system. If you look at the account in Acts, uh, he was the young man who held the coats for people who were stoning Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen a few chapters ago. Uh, He approved of the killing of Christians, it says. He attempted to trap Christians, or as it says, followers of the way. I I love that. In Jerusalem. Not that he was trapping Christians. I love the followers of the way bit. Okay. Um, They fled Jerusalem, and he was pursuing them to Damascus. Uh, Some of the language that Luke uses to describe Saul in his pre-conversion state seems deliberately to portray him as a wild beast. If you get into the Greek, the, the verb that's used for him, for the word destroying, it's used twice in Acts, in Acts 3.8, and then here within this text, it's also used uh, in, in the Greek translation of the Psalms, talking about wild boars destroying a vineyard. So this, this word that's used is someone who's ravaging a body. It's like a wild boar goring someone. This is the, the word picture that Luke is giving us of the pre-conversion Saul. He is a ravenous, angry, malicious animal. He even convinced the high priest to support his plot to destroy the church, and he was headed to Damascus with extradition orders to remove any Christian who was found there back to Jerusalem. He sought to destroy the church. This is where we find ourselves in our text. And what we have to ask is why did he want to destroy the church? Why was he killing people? Here's what I believe. I believe it's because the church stood against what he had hope in, or it stood in opposition, or it stood in tension. Here's what we'll see. People get radical when something stands against their source of hope. People get radical when something stands against their source of hope. Or another way to say it is people get radical when, when something moves against their idolatry. Saul was a Pharisee, and the Pharisee's hope 
was in the ushering, of the king, ushering in of the kingdom of God through righteous living. So what he believed, uh, I, I talked about this last year in a teaching, Pharisees were basically like religious narcs, okay? <laughs> so what they did is they went around policing everyone because what they believed is that it was through the righteous living of people that God's kingdom would come. They, um, they, they were moralists. That, that was their, their basic worldview. And so their belief is that God would send a leader, a Messiah, who would overthrow their oppressors, that God's hand of favor and blessing would be on him. And through him, God would restore Israel to their former glory. Jesus stood in absolute opposition to his view of what a Messiah should be. That's what we have to see here. He, he, there's no way he would have believed that Jesus was the true Messiah. Why? Because he died, Right? It says in Deuteronomy that someone is cursed. Everyone is cursed who is hung upon a tree. So he views Jesus as someone who is cursed. So let's dig deep beneath the surface here. Why did Saul hate the church and oppose Christ? Why the intense fanaticism? I believe, this is me conjecturing, but I think I can get you there. I believe it's because he had intense doubts. Carl Jung says this, He says, fanaticism is due to unconscious doubt that's threatening the conscious attitude. Okay, so it's an unconscious doubt. It's something that's in the back of your head that's threatening a a conscious attitude or disposition. For example, dogmatism is merely to protect a creed against an unrecognized doubt. True conviction needs nothing of the sort. Fanaticism is due to a threatened conviction. Let's dig down into it. Anger and rage does not accompany people who are secure in their beliefs. Think about that. Anger and rage does not accompany people who are secure in their beliefs. It accompanies those who have doubts, right? Those who feel their hope is legitimately being threatened. Uh, Why do I think he had doubts? So we talked about earlier how he was beheaded around the fires of Rome. That's what most history would tell us. So that means that he was a contemporary of Jesus. This means that he was younger, but he was coming up around the same time. So we can deduce, based on the way that Jewish community worked, as he was coming up as a Pharisee, Jesus was coming up as a teacher and a rabbi, it is very likely that the Apostle Paul heard the teachings of Jesus. It is very likely that as he's going through his training, he's hearing about this rabbi in the countrysides who's drawing thousands and who's healing hundreds. It's very likely that at some point, the young teacher from Nazareth came face to face with the young Pharisee from Tarsus. He heard his teachings. He heard the miracles. He looked in his eyes. Even deeper, he saw Stephen's face shine with the glory of God as they stoned him. He heard Stephen cry out, God, forgive them. I believe that there was something within Saul that was not sure that he was right. And so he was raging in his fanaticism instead of confronting his doubts. So what's really threatened here? My belief is that without realizing it, moralism had become an idol for him. His belief system, his worldview had become idolatry for him. And he missed it so far that when God came and walked beside him and likely looked in his eyes, he missed it. You know, when most of us think of the word idolatry, we think either of like American Idol, right? 
or we think of like ancient statues or figures or whatever. But idolatry in the Bible is far more sophisticated than that. Idolatry is, is more internal than external. It's a heart orientation attitude. Ezekiel 14.3, the elders, it's the Old Testament, says set up idols in their hearts. Idolatry occurs when we take a good thing like success or money or power or sex or religion and we turn them into the ultimate thing. We turn them into a God thing. Idolatry occurs when we take a good thing like success, money, power, sex, religion, and we make them the ultimate thing in our lives. And you start looking to that thing to bring you safety and satisfaction and security and purpose and meaning. And here's the truth. The greater the thing, the more likely it is to become an idol in our lives. And the more likely, as Tad says when he taught on this back in April, that we become mean and murderous to anyone who threatens the idol your heart desires. Okay, let's, let's break this down. Has anybody ever gotten a bad haircut? And you're like, I want to murder my barber. I'm not going to do it. But if nobody was looking, maybe, right? Or maybe somebody made you look stupid at work. Like they were wrong. They, they pawned something off on you. And in your heart, you just wanted to like rage and gore them like a boar, right? Has anybody ever gossiped about you and you just wanted to destroy them? What, why? why? Why do we get so angry? Because it's playing at something underneath the surface. It's playing at our idolatry, right? Why do we get angry when we get a bad haircut? It's the idolatry of self-image. Why do we get angry when someone makes us look stupid? It's the idolatry of our intelligence. Why do we get angry when somebody gossips about us? It's the idolatry of our success, our people's perception of us, our, our reputation. You know, all these things are natural feelings, right? That when unchecked by a deeper security, bring about rage and destruction. This is what the gospel does in the heart of the believer. You know, we all have these things, right? Heart is an idol factory, one author said. But we have to have a deeper security that supersedes the security that we seek to find within our idols. Uh, one writer calls these idols systems of self-redemption. Systems of self-redemption. So these are the things that when we look in the mirror, we say, because I have this thing, I am okay. Right? So here's a question. What's the thing, if it got threatened in your life, you wouldn't be okay? Like your self-image would just crumble. If we're honest, or maybe another way to frame it, is what's the way that when you're having a rough day, you look in the mirror and say, I can make it because of these things, right? So for me, the way it used to play out, I've used this analogy before, is when I was in sales, if my sales were up and I was feeling kind of fit, I was good with myself. You know what I'm saying? I was like, I, I, I can do this. I can get through the day. But if those things started to break down, that's when my security began to break down. So question, what are those systems for you? 
What, what are those things that you put in place? We all have them. They're the way we all deal with the underlying sense that every person has that we are not enough. We all have guilt. We all have these issues, right? If you don't, you never dealt with that, I'd love to talk to you after service. Some of us attack others when those things are pressed on. Some of us turn inwards and we actually attack and destroy ourselves. We self-destruct. So, so here's the question. How, how did Paul, let's come back to the original question and we're going we're to dig through this text. How did Paul, Saul, move from someone who's willing to murder the followers of Jesus to become a follower himself? He has a real encounter with the power and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Point number one, 24 minutes in. Okay. Uh, we're going to get through this. Point number one. All of us can and must experience a personal encounter with Jesus that changes us. I'm going to say it again. All of us can and must experience a personal encounter with Jesus that changes us. Let's jump to verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So as we go through this, what we want to do is we want to look at elements of salvation, okay? Elements, not patterns. Why is that important? So patterns, if we look at patterns, we're like, hey, we have to experience exactly that. Like I have to be riding, great light, boom, knocked on the ground. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, right? That's a pattern. An element, as we go through this, is something that's consistent that all of us can experience. And so here's my belief. All of us can have personal encounters with Jesus. Um, as we do those things, it'll start undermining the idols and the things that we have in our lives. Um, so for me, my idols were pleasure and perception, okay? So before I met Christ, my idols were pleasure. What could I do that I would enjoy, that would make me feel good? I, I sought after that with everything I had. And the other thing was perception. I wanted to feel good, and I wanted to look good, and I was opposed to anyone who would make me feel bad or look bad, right? When I had a real encounter with Jesus, it wasn't an encounter of fear, but it was an encounter of revelation, right? I, I realized that I had... Uh, come in contact with somebody who is greater than the idols in my heart. I couldn't use that type of language. I wasn't like, I see Jesus. You're the great iconoclast, right? As Lewis said, you're the one who breaks down idols. No, I, I had a moment where all those other things paled in comparison to the glory of Jesus. That, for me, was the moment that salvation came. My idols, here's what I want us to see, and we're going to get into how we encounter Jesus here in a second, I promise. My idols asked almost nothing from me in the beginning. But they promised me everything, right? As I went, my idols offered me less and less of what I thought I would get, and they took from me everything, right? So in the beginning, going out and searching for pleasure, it just felt good. But at some point, those vices became addictions, which became crippling, which broke me down. My need for approval from others. At first, it felt good, right? It's like, get you your fit, you know, get your haircut, looking good, try to keep a tan, you know, whatever. But then at some point, when, when you encounter someone who's better looking than you, 
or let's just say you have a bad hair day or whatever, it can attack you. Men have that too, right men? It can attack you at your deepest level of security. Here's the truth. When we live for the approval of others, this is what I found within this, we die by their rejection. When you live for the approval of others, you'll die by their rejection. When you live for pleasure, what you're consuming will eventually consume you. This is how it always works. This is what Jesus comes to break down. Uh, Let me give you another example, the idol of success. It's all good at first, right? You're having fun. You're getting praise. You're making money. Not bad. And then something subtle happens to you. You can't define yourself without your success. You can't know yourself without your successes. You don't make sense without your work. And then at some point, you're struggling to keep up. What you're building is dominating you. And eventually it requires more and more and more and more. And it costs you relationships and it costs you time and it costs you your marriage and your kids and time with your family. And at some point, This thing that made a promise to you has actually stolen everything from you and you've sacrificed everything for the idol of success. This is what Jesus came to save us from. This is what Saul, who became Paul, was delivered from in this moment. An idol of self-righteous moralism that had consumed every bit of him. J.I. Packer describes it this way. I think a question we all have to ask as we go through life is like, why do I need saving? Has anybody asked that? (laughs) I asked it this weekend. It's a continual process, but I think it's an important one we have to ask. Why do we need saving? Packer says it this way. He says, what are believers saved from? They're saved from their former position under the wrath of God, the dominion of sin, and the power of death. From their, natu- from their natural condition of being mastered by the, remember this from last week, three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. From the fears that a single life engenders. And from the many vicious habits that were part of it. Um, here's the mind-blowing thing, and we're, we're going to move to the next point. We can have personal encounters with Jesus. I remember the first time I had an encounter with Christ. He didn't come to me. He didn't walk out on the beach. I didn't have the light. But what I did did have is that there was something greater than all my deepest fears and anxieties and ways that I'd sent to bring value to myself. I experienced real self-worth in that moment. I realized that I was loved not based on what I had done, but because someone just loved me. And y'all, there was a peace that I experienced that washed over me. But here's what I found. So that's the beginning. That's the entry point. We have to have a personal encounter with Jesus. But here's what I found. If I want to grow in my faith, I need to have continual daily encounters, personal encounters with Jesus. I was talking to somebody about this before first service. I I realized at some point I had become a a, a really good worker, but a really bad Christian. (laughs) Like this is in my faith. I'm a pastor. I realized I was a good leader, but I was a bad follower. I wasn't a bad follower to other humans. I was a bad follower to Christ. I wasn't spending that time. And so I just want to kind of tell you, this is what what my life looks like now, what I try to do. I wake up in the morning. Callie and I got a uh, coffee maker that you can program. 
We just entered the 21st century. You'll have one of those. If you don't, it's worth it. All right? It does it for you. It's a robot that serves you. And so I wake up. Coffee's ready. And I sit down. We went through this with the men. This is my weekly plug to come to men's prayer. 6 a.m., coffee's ready at 5.50. Wednesday mornings, what's up, okay? Um, We went through this together. But this is what I've been doing is I just sit. I don't do anything. And I just say, God, make me aware of your presence. Jesus, make me aware of your presence. And I just take some time, a couple minutes, sip my coffee, try to stay off my books. I leave my cell phone in another room because I cannot stop touching it, (laughs) right? Leave it, leave it downstairs. And then next, I enter his presence, as the word tells us to, with thanksgiving. Start saying, Jesus, thank you for coming for me. This is what we went through this last week. We thank you that you lived a life I could never live. Thank you for the miracles. Thank you for your trial, for your suffering, for your resurrection. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And then I go into a time of confession. Let's jump into the next one. I think this will be better highlighted in point two. So point number one, all of us can and must have a personal encounter with Jesus. Number two, all of us can and must surrender to Jesus in repentant faith. Um, the, the next phase, y'all, repentance is the door that we have to walk through for faith. But it's also something that has to become a daily part of our life. Okay? I'm going to break that down a little bit more in a minute. But let's go to Acts 22, 7 through 10. This is Paul's retelling of his uh, conversion, Paul, Saul. It says, I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. My companions saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice that was speaking to me. What shall I do? I asked. Okay. What did he surrender? Right? That's a question we have to ask. What what did he surrender? What was he laying down? By saying, what shall I do, Lord, elevating Christ to lordship, what's he surrendering? He's surrendering everything. He's surrendering his entire value system. So here's a question. What's your value system? What's your value system based on? This is something we've talked about a number of times throughout the years. But if we don't think critically we won't be formed by the word and by Christ. We'll be formed by the world, right? It's one of the enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It seeks to form us. So one of the things that we have to lay down, I believe in this moment, Saul had to say, hey, everything I've thought before, I'm laying it down, and I'm going to choose to relook at the scripture. I'm going to use to relook at my life and the reality of who you are. His view of right and wrong, clearly, he thought it was okay to kill people. You know what I'm saying? Like, he, he was in this place where he thought it was okay to persecute and go do all these things. He had to rethink everything. And I think it's interesting. I don't have time to dig all the way down into this. But he then had three days of fasting and silence, and he couldn't see anything. Why? I think he needed to think about some stuff, right? I think he, he needed to take some time, and he, need, he needed to process. Notice this. He surrendered his allegiance. So that, that word, Lord... For them to say, uh, they didn't get this in first service, so this is second service special right here. Uh, for, him to, for them to say Jesus is Lord was an act of treason within the Roman Empire. So the slogan, Caesar is Lord, was expected to be on everyone's lips because you could have your local kings, but ultimate allegiance was to Caesar. Why did they oppress the Christians? Not because they were terrible citizens, 
not because they were protesting and doing all these things. It's because they said, my allegiance is my, and my lordships is not to the empire, but it's to the kingdom. And so when we surrender to Christ, that's what we're coming in and surrendering to. John Stott says, describes the experience this way. He says, he who had entered Damascus full of pride and power as a self-confident, I love this, pride, power, and self-confidence, as an opponent of Christ, was actually led into it, humbled, blinded, a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. His allegiance was no longer to his anger and his insecurities or his morals. It was to the risen Savior in Jesus. Um, real quick, uh, let's, let's do a bit of theology. You all with me on, on this? Uh, I, I've been kind of looking at salvation and thinking through, like, how much, how much of this can we get into? Um, uh, usually with salvation, there's kind of two big buckets, right? There's predestination and there's free will, right? And so I kind of want to break down for you guys my view of this. I'm not saying it's the right view or it's the only view. This is just kind of where I've landed and what makes sense to me. And so I, I believe in a participatory soteriology, okay? What does that mean? <laughs> participatory soteriology, that means participation in salvation. I believe this. Uh, God does everything to secure our salvation from beginning to end. He planned it. He executed it. He came and he lived it. He died for it. He rose from the grave on his own by the power of the Spirit with none of our volition, right? So I believe that all salvation comes from the Lord and, and is his to execute and to give. I believe our part, though, is then to participate and to respond to it, right? So I believe that he's called us, that he's chosen us, that he's completed the work, but that within that, we have to bring our will into alignment with his will. I, I, my theological position, if you want to Google it, is I'm a compatibilist, okay? Or a soft determinist, if you want to be a jerk about it, okay? There's something called hard determinism, which is God uh, solely chooses. You have no part at all in it. I'm a soft determinist, which I'm like, God chooses, he secures it, but we do have some part in it. I believe that your free will and the determining sovereign will of God are compatible and that they work together and that they must work together. And so what we see here, I believe that Saul could have said, no, I believe he could have kept raging. He could have been blinded there on the ground, rolling around like crazy and said, I'm not gonna listen to this, I'm, I'm hallucinating, this is false, but he chose to surrender. That's the choice that we have to make every day, friends. So if you're not a Jesus follower in here, here's what I wanna to present to you. He, he, he loves you more than you've ever been loved. He designed you and he has a purpose for you. He has secured your salvation. He's secured your security. He's secured uh, the solution for your underlying guilts and fears and all of those different things. And all you have to do is accept it in the same way that we have to accept a bill that's been paid for us. Then we get to learn how to walk in it. Amen? So what do you have to surrender? That's a question. If you're not a Jesus follower, I think that, that's a huge question to ask. If you are a Jesus follower, I still think it's an incredibly important question that we have to ask every day. So like I said, for me, become aware of God's presence. I thank him, and then I take some time and I repent. Every day, I review the last 24 hours. If you're tracking this kind of uh, quiet time, I review the last 24 hours. I, I look at my interactions. Why did I say the things that I did? Why did I do the things? Why did I get upset with my toddler for being a toddler or whatever, you know, it is. What do you have to surrender? Better question, what's the thing that you're currently holding on to that's killing you on the inside and it's working its way to the outside? 
The, the scripture says that our sin will find us out. What, what does that mean? I, I don't think it means that there's no way you can ever hide your sin. We could die with it. We could die with secrets. Um, but what I believe is that when we live those things, that they work themselves from the inside out. And it brings about chaos and guilt and stress and all these other different things in our lives. And what I have found, because it sounds exhausting to take every day and kind of review all, does that sound tiring to anybody? I remember the first time I heard it, it's like, that's exhausting, going through every interaction. But here's what I've found. It actually brings me more peace, not less. I I found I walk into my day with more clarity and more grace because y'all, we're gonna think about these things and feel these things one way or the other. We cannot avoid it. But what I've found is when I do it in the presence of Christ, and I ask for the courage to change, that he comes alongside of me, and, and he helps me in that. Amen? Amen? Point three, and I am way over time, so I'm going to go quick here. Um, point one, all of us can and must have an encounter, personal encounter with Jesus. Point two, all of us can and must uh, surrender with repentant faith to Jesus. Point three, all of us can and must enter the community of Jesus. I don't have any time to get into this, but basically, if you look at the meat of the passage, uh, verses 9 through 19, basically, Ananias is told, go to Saul. Now, think about this. Go to the guy who's been killing your friends and family and lay hands on him and heal him. And he says, excuse me, Lord? That's direct, that's the Greek. Um, Notice this though. There's two acts of obedience. The first thing that Jesus asks Saul to do is to enter the community of faith. Anyone who tells you of faith in Jesus and Christianity and spirituality but tells you you do not need other people to go through it is lying to you. Anyone who promises you participation in the things of God without the people of God is leading you down a lonely and disappointing road. Now, now here's the reality. All of us are walking in here. Some of you guys are are walking in here with this fresh, with something called church hurt. Has anybody ever heard that term? It's, It's big right now. People are going through tons of this. Some of you guys, you're here because you went through some things in another church. Can I, can I help reframe this a bit? Church hurt, I actually don't think is an accurate definition. You know, people hurt you. You know what I'm saying? Like, people hurt you, and people do make up the church, but, but the church is the holy bride of Christ. Like, we're becoming like him, and, and what can happen is when we label our hurt from a broken person on the church, it can actually separate us from God's people. And, and, and here's what you're going to find. Some of you guys, your, your hurt is that you went into a church, and you didn't see any grace. And so you left. Philip Yancey has a phenomenal quote about this. He said, I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. He says, I returned because I found grace nowhere else. Y'all, for better or for worse, (laughs) the people of God in the church, this is the vessel, the chosen vessel for God's forgiveness and God's grace. You will not find true grace in any other religion we don't have time. I could talk about it forever, maybe for another week. Um, but, but notice this. It says in verse 17, he, Ananias went to his house. He put his hands on Saul, and he called him brother. Beautiful act of grace and forgiveness. Both had to be obedient. Y'all, we need each other. Listen, if you're, if, you're, if, if you're a new Christian or maybe this morning you want to make a decision for Jesus, you can have a personal encounter with him. You enter into his presence with repentant faith. 
But number three, he will call you into a relationship with God's people. And, and in that, I'm telling you, you're going to find the deepest, most beautiful relationships you can find on the planet. Lastly, all of us can and must receive the summons to service from Jesus. Verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, think about this, all right? We're all in here. We have fear. There's somebody out here who's been killing us, been killing our friends, been killing our family members. And all of a sudden, that cat walks up on stage and says, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, right? Think about that. How would we respond? You know, we're like, what? Skeptical. But it's the radical grace of God. And what God does, what we've got to see here, is God gives us the gift of his presence. He invites us into it with repentant faith that will absolutely transform our lives. We can go from being ravenous and wild to graceful and free. He'll invite us into a community, a family of the church, and then he'll give us purpose and he'll give us meaning in life. Paul, Saul began building the kingdom he had lived to destroy. It's within the church, it's within the building the kingdom of Jesus that we will find the deepest meaning and purpose in life. Um, three, three, three steps. We pulled this from some of Comer's work. Um, our goal is to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then ask ourselves the question, how would Jesus live if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were me? Y'all, this is the first step of salvation. This is the first step of entering into a relationship with Jesus. And it's the continual steps of a relationship with Christ. And I'm telling you, it will transform you. And it will bring you more and more into the meaning that God designed you and built you for. I want to close with one more quote from Stott. We're going to pray. It says this. It says, Divine grace does not trample on human personality. Rather, the reverse for it enables human beings to be truly human. It's sin which imprisons. It's grace which liberates. The grace of God so frees us from the bondage of pride, prejudice, self-sitterness, as to enable us to repent and believe. We can only marvel at the grace of God, that he should have shown mercy on such a rabid bigot as Saul of Tarsus and indeed on such a proud, rebellious, wayward creatures as ourselves. This is the work of the gospel. So what's the path? Know God, experience Jesus. Step two, find freedom, right? Step three, walk in step with God's people. Step four, go out and make a difference. This is what God's called us to do. Uh, this is God's word. And so I have two questions for you. Is there anything God's speaking to you? Anything as we're going through this that God was just stirring up or highlighting in your heart, anything you need to work on. And if he's speaking to you, what are you going to do about it? What's your action? How are you going to participate in what he's speaking? Amen. Hey guys, Pastor Bronson here. I pray that this message that you just listened to helps you and assists you in your journey with Jesus. And if you want to get connected in our church, follow us on Instagram at NLC Downtown Little Rock.